Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. When we talk about a New York City landmark, what exactly are we referring to? Sure, a landmark is a building that has some sort of historical, cultural, or architectural significance, but there's also an official landmark designation. Today on Cityscape, we'll meet the director of the New York Landmarks Preservation Commission, the group responsible for designating and protecting notable New York landmarks. We'll also take a closer look at one specific landmark, the Barclay VC Building, and we'll recap the fight to preserve the Corbin Building in the face of downtown renovations. And throughout the show, we'll visit some notable landmarks as found in song. Like the folks you meet on, like to plant my feet on the Brooklyn Bridge. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Downtown at the corner of Fulton and Broadway, big changes are afoot. It's the construction of the Fulton Street Transit Center, an ambitious underground project to link 12 different subway lines, as well as the PATH train and the World Trade Center site. The project is being headed by the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the city, and the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, the group charged with revitalizing the downtown areas affected by the 9-11 attacks. As with any large-scale construction project, especially in New York City, there have been lots of delays, budget problems, and different interests to balance. One of the most contentious decisions was the fate of the Corbin Building, which sits at 11 John Street, directly above the transit center construction. Designed by Francis Kimball and built in 1888, the Corbin has remained remarkably intact through the years. The Griffins still sit over the main entrance to greet visitors, and though covered by a thick layer of soot, the original terracotta design continues to make the Corbin jump out from its drabber high-rise neighbors. Earlier this month, residents of the Corbin building began to move out to make way for the transit center construction. Shops that had been in the basement for decades, tailors, shoe stores, soup counters, were asked to pack up and move. Some found a new home across the street or around the block, but many simply closed their doors for good. And today, as commuters come off the Fulton Street C train, they're greeted with empty shops and dusty aisles. Soon, the subway stations in that area will close and construction of the transit center will begin in earnest. By the end of 2008, the MTA hopes to have the transit center finalized. And due to some last-minute politicking on the part of local preservation groups, the Corbin building will remain. In fact, the MTA now plans to help restore the building once the transit center is completed. The Fulton Street Transit Center is a quintessential example of the considerations that go into construction projects in New York City. New infrastructure has to be balanced with the city's architectural heritage. It's never an easy process, but sometimes, as in this case, a viable solution can be found. Now on to another transit hub, one that's been around for a long, long time. New York City is on the move, and Grand Central Terminal is at the heart of that hustle and bustle. One of the city's most famous landmarks, the current building was constructed from 1903 to 1913. Grand Central's famous astrological ceiling was painted in 1912 by French artist Paul César Hélot, 
and curiously features a backwards night sky. In August 1968, Grand Central received official designation from the Landmark Preservation Commission, one of the first Manhattan landmarks to be designated. By the mid-1970s, however, the Penn Central Railroad sought to demolish the building and build a high-rise office tower. The dispute went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and in 1978, Grand Central's landmark status was upheld. The building was saved. Grand Central Station received a major renovation in the late 1990s and is now home to Metro North, the Long Island Railroad, and several subway lines. In addition, it has served as a home to countless artists and performers hoping to earn a little extra cash from passing commuters. One year before the Supreme Court saved Grand Central, musician Steve Forbert stood in the main concourse and penned this tribute to the landmark. It's called Grand Central Station, March 18, 1977. Wheels and it deals The crowds rush and scramble Round past the newsstands and out across the floors And I did some singing And I played guitar So just how does a building like Grand Central receive landmark status? What about entire neighborhoods that are designated landmarks? What's the difference between an interior and an exterior landmark? And once designated a landmark, what restrictions are placed upon a structure? Those types of decisions are made by the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission. We recently caught up with Robert Tierney. He's the commission's chair. Why don't you first give us a little bit of background on the Landmarks Preservation Commission. This is a commission that formed in the mid-1960s after public outcry over the demolition of the old Pennsylvania station. That's exactly right. Uh, 1965, to be exact, is when the commission was actually enacted into law by then Mayor Wagner and the city council. But in 63, Pennsylvania Station... Uh, which is now where the Madison Square current Madison Square Garden is located up on 33rd Street and uh, 8th Avenue, was tragically demolished. And I mean tragic. It was just uh, an awful period of time. And I think uh, for the city and for preservation, for, sur- for sure, and I think people reacted with horror and were brought to their senses and finally said, this has got to st- This can't happen again. We can't let another Penn Station go or anything like it. It's an act of civic vandalism, it was called, and I think that describes it well. And uh, the mayor responded, city council responded, preservationists rallied, and we got a landmarks law 40 years ago, now 41 years ago. So a building has to have landmark status in order for you to get involved in preservation? In the the protection of it, that's right. And we are the ones, this commission uh, that I am privileged to chair is, confers that landmark status. What is the criteria for landmarking? Uh, It's, the reason we have a landmark commission is to apply a rather broad statutory criteria, the, the aesthetic, historic, or architectural significance of the of the building to uh, the state, city, or nation. Uh, 
and it's up to the commission to make those judgments. Does it have that sort of threshold architectural and design significance? Why is it important to the city? Uh, is it historic? Who lived there? What happened there? And, um, and then in historic districts, how you feel block by block, you get a sense of place. Do you know you're in a specific location that, that has a certain integrity and coherence, and that becomes a historic district? Is the owner of a landmarked building under any obligation to restore that building? Well, the owners of landmark properties are under an obligation to keep them in a state of quote-unquote good repair. That's what the statute says. Good repair can mean a lot of things, but fundamentally it means that the building can be occupied, that its essential features are intact, and that if they're for instance, if there is damage to any of those, import, particularly the architectural features from which its designation flows, that those be repaired. If you're a landmark property owner and your property is deteriorating, we, you have an obligation to keep it in good repair. We have an enforcement unit. We will do an inspection. We will try to meet with the owner and persuade him or her to bring it back to a state of good repair. Can an owner resist landmark designation, simply say, yes. we don't want it? They do. It, it, they can say that, and it, owner consent is not required for landmark designation. I try to get it wherever possible. It's always good to have a land, an owner be cooperative. I would imagine that the real estate industry also tries to put a lot of pressure on your commission. Yeah, but they're very, I believe they're very responsible and receptive and understand the nature of our mission and where possible cooperate with it and property values and upkeep and maintenance of properties in landmark districts tend to be of a better and higher quality than in non-landmark districts and ironically enough that contrary to some um, standard wisdom if you will landmark properties appreciate in value higher faster so it's not an economic burden it's an economic benefit but if there were to be a historic property on a site that could be knocked down and build That's a true. you know big high rise there. Those are the sacrifices that are made to the, the greater good of society that the landmarks law is has been uh, designed to achieve. You're an 11 member commission, so right. you folks vote. We do vote, and six out of 11 is what you need. And we I do count votes, and uh, we need the six out of 11 to pass uh, either to designate new landmarks or to make changes in old landmarks. In recent history, you're aware there are people who have criticized your commission, saying that there needs to be more public input yeah. in these decisions. How do you answer that? We have an enormous amount of public input, and I know those critics, and I know I mean, of them, and I listen to them, and they're here every uh, Tuesday at our public hearings. I mean, week in, week out. 20, you know, they're here <laughs> year-round. So uh, there is, we, we believe, ample opportunity to be heard, much of, if not all of what we do, is totally out in the open and public. Much of it's subject to the open meetings law and to our public hearing process. And we, then we also constantly listen to, outside of the context of the public hearing, to what's being said, whether it's on the, um, you know, in the letters from the preservation groups, in individual emails, all kinds of input. So I can always learn more, and um, I would... If I could make it any more open, I would. I just haven't figured out a way to do that right now.
Do you rely on the public to a certain extent to notify yeah. you if something's happening yeah. out there to no. a historic building? Absolutely. The eyes and ears of the 8 million New Yorkers, is, are you know, those eyes and ears are essential, just as the eyes and ears of everyone in this agency. People live in all the five boroughs. People come in here uh, in the morning and say, I was walking down, you know, I was walking down street in Park Slope this morning where I live on the way to the subway and I saw a building. I jotted down the note. a note. What, what is the status of it? Can you take a look at it? And we do. We factor that in. Some city council members have sought more of a voice and more control in the landmarking process. Do you think this is something the city council should be getting more involved with? Well, the council now has a right to approve or disapprove individual landmark designations. And so anything we do here if we're designating a historic district or a new building, it ultimately, after we vote, it goes first to the City Planning Commission to be sure it's consistent with city zoning regulations. That's usually pretty um, perf relatively perfunctory. But then it goes to the New York City Council for full review. Are you disappointed when the City Council reverses a decision? You know, you win, you win some and lose some. I'm always disappointed when a, something that we in our considered judgment find to be uh, worthy, uh, there's a disagreement at the Council. So it happens rarely, though. There are hundreds, hundreds, thousands of buildings designated and a handful that are ever turned back. So I'm prepared to live with it. People can disagree, and occasionally we don't see eye to eye, but overwhelmingly we do. One thing that I noticed recently walking not too far from here where you're located on Center Street, on Fulton Street where the MTA yeah. is building yes. a new hub there, there is a building, the Corbin Building. Yes. What's the status of that? Uh, it's going to be saved and incorporated into the uh, Fulton Street Transit Center. Yeah, by the MTA has agreed to do it, but I can let you in on a little secret. It was after a session with Chairman Peter Calico. This is two or three years ago than myself that I was able to bring him to information that we thought was significant, that that highlighted the significance of that building, the importance of its architect, Francis Kimball, and why it, in our view, needed to be saved. Because it's owned by the MTA, it's outside the technical jurisdiction of our body, but he agreed to A, save it, and B, incorporate it into the transit center, and I am very pleased with that outcome, and we're also monitoring it to see that it is incorporated in a sensible way, and we think it will be. Does this building have landmark status? No, it doesn't. So it's one of those where I use the power of, and I use, let's say, the informal processes of persuasion, jawboning, and the like. And I, I know a lot of people at the MTA. I know Peter Calico. He was very receptive and responsive, and he was persuaded and was able to instruct his staff to proceed with the Fulton Street Transit Hub, but to be sure that the Corbin building was a part of it. You mentioned some buildings that are designated because of what's on the outside. Let's talk about buildings that are designated landmarks because of what's on the inside. Sure. There are relatively few and far between individual uh, interior landmarks. Um, partially is because we'll discuss it a little more, the nature of an interior space, particularly if it's someone, if it's privately owned government, is a little bit different. You don't want to just designate an interior landmark and then never have any access to it. It doesn't, it's sort of an abstract concept of, is it still a landmark if people can't see it? So yes, we do have interiors. There are about 107, last count, interior landmarks as over and against approximately 1,200 or so. Uh, sort of standard, if you will, 
uh, exterior only landmarks, and uh, but those interiors are very special, very much protected. They have to be publicly accessible at the time they're designated, and then I implore everyone to continue to make them publicly accessible in a reasonable way. We're not interfering. We're not leading tours through people's homes or anything like that, but there ought to be a reasonable balance, and that's what we try to achieve. At the time they're designated. Now, that's very important to point out because after 9-11, things have changed. Yeah, there are security concerns that have to be addressed and are addressed, and so there can't be unlimited access to any interiors, but we think reasonable security needs can be balanced with the opportunity for the public to see, at least on a limited basis, or not again, not 24-7, but on some sensible time frame, whether it's a guided tour on a once or twice a week if or whatever, but that there would be the opportunity for the public to see these landmarks. More recently, you landmarked the interior and the exterior of the former AT&T building. Yes. Let's talk about that. Uh, incredibly exciting building. If you've been over there and you've seen those columns and you've seen the incredibly imposing, impressive interior of that building, you know how uh, significant it is. The building itself, too, uh, on its the exterior, if you will, the actual structure of the building, but it also has a major importance in the um, economic history of the state, city, and nation. And so it's a great one to get. And there are indications, there are reminders in that building of its history, and, and uh, some of that's incorporated into the design. Some of it's incorporated into the feeling you get when you walk into the lobby. And that's why the interior part of it was especially important to us. And what's the location of this building? 195 Broadway. Mr. Tierney, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to Cityscape from WFUV. I'm George Boldarki. Today's show is all about New York's landmarks. If you have any comments about the show, be sure to visit the bulletin boards at WFUV.org, where you can also podcast this and past week's programs. Possibly New York's most recognizable structure is the Brooklyn Bridge. Not just a local landmark, the bridge was designated the National Historic Engineering Landmark in 1983, and it's been on the National Register of Historic Places since 1977. Constructed in the 1880s from limestone, granite, and concrete, the bridge was 50% longer than any other suspension bridge in the world at the time. The open nature of the Gothic trusses is a fortunate design technique. Bridges were not tested in wind tunnels until the 1950s, and had the Brooklyn Bridge not featured such open construction, its susceptibility to strong winds would be much greater. But the bridge has survived, and as it did on the day it opened, the Brooklyn Bridge features a wide pedestrian walkway above the car lanes. This walkway is open to those who choose to walk or bike in or out of Manhattan. It was a casual stroll across the Brooklyn Bridge that inspired this Frank Sinatra song from 1946. Like the folks you meet on, like to plant my feet on the Brooklyn Bridge. What a lovely view from heaven looks at you from the Brooklyn Bridge. I love to listen to the wind through her strings. Song that she sings for the town. 
I love to look up at the clouds in her hair. She's learned to wear like a crown. If you've been a rover, journeys end, lies over the Brooklyn Bridge. Don't let no one tell you I've been trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. All the folks in Manhattan are sad, cause they look at her and wish they had the good old Brooklyn. At the corner of Barclay and Vesey Streets in Manhattan sits the Verizon Building. Originally built for the New York Telephone Company in 1927, the building was the first Art Deco skyscraper and helped embody the spirit of the growing communications industry. Known colloquially by the streets that border it, the Barclay Vesey Building suffered significant damage to both its exterior and interior during the September 11th attacks. Stephen Serenero of William Collins Architects recently gave Cityscape a tour of the renovation work. It's got 1.2 million square feet, about 486 feet tall. I think it took three years to complete. Now, this building is brick and it's also limestone, right? Yeah, there are limestone decorative elements you'll see throughout, uh, hand carved. On the uh, east side here, where Se- Seven World Trade came down, a good, a good deal of that limestone, the hand carved limestone, was damaged, destroyed. Uh, we were actually able to recreate a good portion of it by taking tracings from the west side, the West Street side and recreating those carvings, uh, putting them back in place. So you had to create molds? There were etchings, there were molds. There are many different processes used to recreate not just the limestone, but also a lot of the bronze decorative ornaments. This is a building that has been around for more than 80 years. Did you do anything to the limestone to make it look weathered? The building is a landmark building, protected. And and as such, you know, there were things that we needed to do to, to match the finishes, the brick, the limestone, the bronze work, the stone. Um, and so, you know, the, as, as a team, as a whole, uh, we found ways to do that, and I think we did it quite effectively. Now, you were called in pretty quickly, right, following the World Trade Center attacks? Yeah, we, we were actually we were down here on site uh, two days later physically, but we had been working in the office um, immediately after the attacks. We had, we had been doing a great deal of work for Verizon. With that, we had a great deal of knowledge of the building. Here we are in the lobby of the New York Telephone Building. I would imagine this place had to be covered with dust. Where we're standing right now, as a matter of fact, was uh, a pile of rubble again from seven through here. This entrance had to be walled off and separated. Matter of fact, this whole side of the building internally we had walled off and had no access to until we repaired the damage. Being this is radio, why don't you describe this lobby for us and what we're looking at on the ceiling? Okay, we've got uh, kind of a barrel-vaulted structure. It it runs through the building from the east side to the west side. Um, On either end is, is, uh, one end is the entrance to Washington Street, the other end is the entrance and exit to 140 West Street. And there's uh, bronze doors here, rotating, revolving bronze bronze doors and some decorative elements above it. We've got two bronze chandeliers in in the middle of the lobby. And really kind of draw your attention upward to... The, the painted ceiling, which is it's kind of unusual. There's 10 fresco paintings here, and, and what we're looking at is 
the architect's desire to express the importance of communication and the history of communication and really translate some of those ideas into paintings. So what was your primary role here in the lobby of the building? Our intention here was to recreate or bring back to its original grandeur the paintings, the sculpture work here. Artisans worked painstakingly by hand with needles, hypodermic needles, uh, reattaching paint, reattaching components. Thanks for the tour. Thank you. That's Stephen Saranero of William Collins Architects discussing renovations at the Barclay VC building. Let's now head uptown a couple of miles to the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. The Chelsea is a cultural landmark unlike any other in New York City. Through the years, and especially in the late 1960s and early 70s, the hotel served as a residence for painters, musicians, filmmakers, and avant-garde characters of all stripes. Built in 1883, the Chelsea remains New York's tallest building through 1902. It officially opened as a hotel three years later and has been open to short-term and long-term borders ever since. During its lifetime, the Chelsea has been home to, among others, Mark Twain, Dylan Thomas, Jack Kerouac, Milos Foreman, and Frida Kahlo. Andy Warhol immortalized the structure in his film Chelsea Girls. Bob Dylan made the Chelsea his home for several years, circa 1966. 1966 was also the year that the Chelsea received official landmark status. It was the first building to be listed by the city as a cultural preservation site. In 1974, Leonard Cohen penned this song about his time spent at the Chelsea with Janis Joplin. I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel You were famous, your heart was a legend You told me again you preferred handsome men But for me you would make an exception And clenching your fist for the ones like us Who are oppressed by the figures of fixed yourself you said well never mind we are ugly but we have the music and then you got away didn't you baby you just turned your back on the crowd you got away I never once heard you say I need you I don't need you I need you, I don't need you And all of that jiving around I don't mean to suggest that I loved you the best I can't keep track of each fallen robin I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel that's all, I don't even think of you that often. We'll leave you now with a song from Simon and Garfunkel. Often simply referred to as Feeling Groovy, the full title of this tune is the 59th Street Bridge Song. 
That landmark is officially known as the Queensboro Bridge, and it's one of four that crosses the East River to Manhattan. The bridge opened to the public in the spring of 1909, and at the time was the longest cantilever bridge in the world. In The Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway and Jay Gatsby crossed the Queensboro together. Nick remarks that the city seen from the Queensboro Bridge is always the city seen for the first time, and its first wild promise of all the mystery and beauty in the world. Today, with eight lanes of traffic on the upper and lower levels, it's hard to imagine that most commuters on the Queensboro get a chance to take in the full skyline. So, while Simon and Garfunkel's tribute to this landmark may never mention it by name, the overall message is conveyed clearly in the very first line. Slow down, you move too fast. One, two, three. We hope you're feeling good this morning. You've been listening to Cityscape. Again, if you'd like to share your thoughts about the show or podcast this episode, be sure to visit WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Jody Abergan. Have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The New York City Police Museum features an old-time jail cell, turn-of-the-century mugshots, and more. It's just one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. More information at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.